Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 202 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. You're back in the office. I'm back in the office. Back from your adventures. I was. I was in Denver for the ALA Midwinter Conference, and I got to do some booth presentations um, about Overdrive and do some author interviews, and I love Denver. Yeah, Denver rules. All around good time. Yeah. Um... So, a few things. One, you did the interview, so we'll talk about that in a second. And two, I figured you could maybe, like, highlight anything that you liked about Denver because my life is in shambles right now. Um, <laughs> I am currently moving, like, to this weekend is the big, like, get everything into the U-Haul. Right. So, that's all my brain can think about. Yeah. So, including I did tweet as the podcast, um, I packed up all my books. It I was it. ten boxes. Um, whoops. A lot of books. Anyway. What were some, were there any, like, fun things that stood out about ALA or anything in general? Denver has good food. Denver has great food. Denver has good food. Um, The mountains are very pretty. Mm -hmm. Um, I love 16th Street. We were staying right near 16th Street, which is this, for those that don't know, is, like, a street, obviously. Uh, That is, (laughs) well, no, it's closed down to cars, and Mm -hmm. there's a train that runs up the length of it, and you can kind of hop on and hop off. Um, and there's shops and food and, and at the very end is a actual train station, mm-hmm. um, where I, uh, have family in the area. So we had dinner there at one of the restaurants in the train station. So food, Denver yeah. has good food. Yes, it does. Last time I was there, I think I was there for a bachelor party and I was just like, to break the continuous disgustingness of being on a bachelor party, I went for a run in one morning and like, man... Running in Denver is humbling. <laughs> that altitude is no joke. Because yeah. you don't really think about it until you land and you're like, where's this headache coming from? <laughs> the other thing that um, I was talking to uh, the marketing director here about because he was with you, and I forgot about it too until I got there, is it super dry? It is so dry. Yeah. And I did not bring any chapstick because that did not occur to me. And, and then, yeah, by after like a day or two, I was just like, oh my God. And, and at one point we are doing these booth presentations and um, I had to mute my mic when I wasn't talking to go over to one of our coworkers and be like, "Someone needs to get me some water, please." Yeah, because <laughs> I cannot finish this presentation. Yeah, so just uh, Adam and Jill's travel podcast. If you are ever going to Denver or anywhere in the mountains, chapstick, drink a lot of water, and like moisturizing lotion mm-hmm. probably help you out yep. a lot. Um, so yeah, uh. You, like you said, you did a bunch of interviews, and one of them is going to be today's episode. So, want to tell us about it? Yeah, so I got to interview Matt Haig. He is British, and he's the author of How to Stop Time, which I believe has been out in the UK for... Mm-hmm. I'm just saying Sorry, he's I'm an la- accent. I'm laughing, because you're... Oh, he's just, British. I, we've never done that before. We're like, he's British. <laughs> the accent will give it away. No, um, I'm just... That's my thing. Like, I think the book has been out in the UK for... Um, I, think, I think you're right. Some time, but it is now, or will be... No, it is out now. Um, How to Stop Time is about a man who ages very, very, very slowly. Mm-hmm. So he's been alive for um, several centuries, but looks like he's in his mid to late 40s. And so it's about his life now, and he's a um, history teacher, which cracks me up. And then <laughs> sort of reflecting on choices he made and relationships he had and um also his future which like what do you do when you know you're gonna live for so long so um it was it was a really fun discussion you'll hear i ask a question that he had 
not been asked that nobody had like a detail in the book nobody had picked up on and he was super surprised that I did so it's not the best go me I love doing like that's I I yearn for those times when the author's like wow that's a really great question and I'm like he was like well spotted I was yeah. like yes <laughs> also this well spotted he did wow, I'm pretty sure that's British. what he says he I know I'm pretty uh, sure that's what he said and when I asked the question also unrelated, but I'm almost positive you got this at LA. You're wearing a pin right now that says Wizard Activist, which is I wonderful. Am. Um, so uh, the Harry Potter Alliance was there. I made sure to seek them out. They mm-hmm. were way on the other side of the conference thing. Um, but I also bought myself a shirt that says Hex the Patriarchy. <gasps> Perfect. That's amazing. So, oh, yes, I, love I, that did, so much. I did buy that at ALA. I have um, the, when you're at conferences like this, you get like lanyards with your name badge and you get you can put ribbons on them for whatever you're doing. I saw you found one that said podcaster, which is amazing. They had some really cool ones that I think got snapped. I like the Rebel Librarian I've seen before written in Star Wars uh, font. That rocks. I saw a one that said Wonder in red with the Wonder oh Woman God. W. Oh, stop it. And then one person, I have no idea where they found it, one person had one that was... Shoot, I can't remember what it actually said, but I think it was Hawkins Public Library in the Stranger Things font. Because it would be like, and then like something with the upside down on the other (gasps) side, I think. Jesus. So these are the ones that get snatched up very, very, they have these like this ribbon bar. Mm -hmm. Librarians love their ribbons where you can kind of stack them um, for different groups you're part of or organizations within ALA or, or all sorts of things like that. But there's, there are some fun pop culture ones that float around too. That is amazing. Yeah, I like very much. I have a wizard activist ribbon, but I got yes, you from have a, you have the a pin. pin. Yeah, awesome. Um, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? You can find us on Facebook. No, no, not Facebook. Not nope. <laughs> they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pro Book Nerds, and they can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive Yes, they can. Uh, anything else that you think anybody should anybody that everybody should know about before we get in? I think that's everything. All right, well, um, I hope you guys enjoyed this interview that Jill did with British author Matt Haig on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. With me today is author Matt Haig. His book, The Dead Father's Club, and um, author of The Dead Father's Club and the Possession of Mr. Cave. His book, The Radleys, won an ALA Alex Award and he was and was nominated for a Carnegie Medal. Matt's latest novel, How to Stop Time, is out now. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So can you give our uh, listeners a brief introduction to How to Stop Time? Okay, um, well, simple sort of story-wise, it is a, about a old person, a very old man, who is li- literally impossibly old. He's mm-hmm. 439 years old, so he was born in 1581. In the present day, he's a history teacher in contemporary London. Um, and the book is about his present and about his past and about how he comes to terms with his past. He... Um, he, the reason he's 439 is he has this condition called anagyaria, where from the adolescence onwards, um, you're aging much slower. In his case, for every 15 years of real time, he's biologically aging one year. So he only looks 
41, 42, um, heading towards middle age, but he is, he's been around for centuries. Um, he, he, he's got all kinds of issues and anguish in his life because, um, <coughs> the secret has been a dangerous one, um, for those who's known it. And he's had all sort of guilt, guilt issues relating to people he's loved and lost. Um, he's still grieving his first love, Rose, who didn't share his condition. And so she lived a normal mortal life back in the, um, 1500s and 1600s. And it's about how, it, at the, on the bigger level, it's about how, how we live, um, without sort of drowning in our own past and how we can embrace the moment. So one thing I wanted to ask you about that I was very curious about while reading the book is why you chose to make it, why is he not immortal? Why does he just age slowly versus that level? Well, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of immortality books. Um, that was one thing. I've written about immortality before. I've written about immortal aliens and vampires and things. Um, with this, I, 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 I basically, I, I was, this wasn't the kind of fantasy I was writing to as an escape. This was, this was one of, you know, what I love about fantasy fiction often is when it can provide a microscope on us and a sort of mirror back. So I wanted them to face all the issues we face, but just exaggerated. So, um, he, he, he's going to grow old. He's going to die. He, he, he's going to sort of, um, mentally and physically deteriorate with the passing of time. But he, his, his fate is worse than ours in a way because he's going to be like, he's going to be in right. his seventies for yeah. a century. He's going to have <laughs> arthritis for a lot longer than any of us will. So, um, I, I thought that would be interesting and, um, you know, it'd help explain um, why, why he sort of isn't always the happiest character in the world. Um, also, I just thought if we could take someone like that, who is more, as mortal as we are, but, but has in some ways more reason to, you know, be despairing and more reason to not connect with people and somehow within that misery find a spark of light or a bit of hope or a reason to go on then. Um, it would be more uh, nourishing, I suppose. No, that makes sense. I love that in our present time, he works as a history teacher because, of course, he has all of this Yeah, so he's knowledge. living history. He's, yeah. Yes. How did you decide, you know, in the book, you, you talk about how he's sort of reflecting on his past. How did you decide which time periods of his past to focus on? Um, well, I set myself, I didn't set myself many rules, but the one rule I did is to sort of, Every hundred or so years, I have one period. So you have a, the feeling of a breadth of his life mm -hmm. without, you know, while being able to concentrate on just a few periods. Otherwise, you know, a diary of a 500-year-old man would be laborious and quite a long read. So I had to, I had to cherry pick. And sometimes it's purely because of what suits um, the story. For instance, the going um, abroad with Captain Cook mm -hmm. on his second voyage. That, that was um, absolutely um, for the story. And that was the first idea I had for the story because the character in it called Omai, although there are some very, very famous real historical figures, there's some lesser known real historical figures. And he's a real person. So, that, so Omai, this character who um, uh, was from Tahiti, who was brought back 
from the South Pacific, almost like an exotic trophy or artifact in the 1770s in London. And he was like the second Pacific Islander ever to reach Europe. He was a real person. But anyway, there's a portrait of him in the in a National Portrait Gallery in London. And he, he's just so handsome and ageless. And when I was researching him, I realized that no one knows when he, when he died. So I thought it'd be interesting for him to have Anageria too. I didn't think he should be the central character. I didn't think I was the person to write his story as a central character. But I thought he'd be an interesting sort of foil to Tom. And um, yeah, the story started from there, but I had to get to Omai from England. And um, so, so Captain Cook was the sort of most obvious way to do that. And then other things, well, it depends. Sometimes it was um, pure self-indulgence, like the Paris in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. That was just me fantasy time traveling. It's a period that's been done to death, I know, but it was just like myself up right. as a writer <laughs> on a Tuesday afternoon. Sure. And, um, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald serves absolutely no plot purpose, but I think he serves a little thematic purpose and I, I plucked him in there. Um, and yeah, it's, it, 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 it depends. I mean, I, I, I aged him how I did, like not, I mean, he is ridiculously old, but right. I could have gone even more ridiculously mm-hmm. old. You could have started him in like ancient Greece or something. But my rule for that was that set him within uh, the parameters of actual natural life. So, I mean, there are living creatures that are older than him. Like, right. There are clams that are over 500 years old. Oh, there's these sharks they've discovered in Greenland. The now. Greenland sharks, yeah, yes. that are a thousand <laughs> years. And apparently, there's other sea worms that are over a thousand years. But the idea of a shark that could be a thousand years—that's exciting because that's a big, living, intelligent creature that is a thousand years old. Um, anyway, yeah. So I, I, I set him within, you know, within the realms of, in terms of the novel plausibility, um, you know. But at the same time, I wasn't, as anyone who's read the book realizes plausibility wasn't necessarily my guiding principle right. you know I, I thought well he's in Shakespeare in England so let's meet Shakespeare I mean um you know I, I know that if you lived to 500 you you would probably have met some famous people and interesting people um and also in Shakespearean London Shakespearean London wasn't London now it was a, a town of 250,000 people so there's a chance he could have ended up mm-hmm. working for the theatre being the type of person he was but more than that I just thought, you know, if I'm writing a book about time and I've got Shakespeare in England, got to go there. Got to go there. And that was the key um, decision for me, for putting Shakespeare in, because I felt like that, that was something my editor was a bit funny about, and I felt like if I was writing this in a creative writing course, they would say, don't put Shakespeare in there. You know, it's just, it could be too corny, or it could be um, too unrealistic. But I, 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 you know, this is my novel number 14. And I, I feel like, well, not novel number 14, book number 14. But and at this point in my career, I feel like I'm writing to have fun. And yeah. hopefully some of that fun crosses over. Even when it's a miserable character like Tom, me writing, this was actually my most fun book to write. So I could see that. I could see that. So it's just, you know, going where <laughs> I wanted to go. So that actually is a good lead in, into my next question, yep. which is that you do have these real character, like real people in your mm. book. How, what was that like for you fictionalizing them? And what was your research process like? Um, it was, it, I, I had to do a lot of research for this book. I'm, I'm someone who's, who's traditionally been quite lazy with research, quite like written the kind of books that you don't need to heavily search too much. 
obviously here with not just a, a historical book, but a book set in different mm -hmm. periods. Um, it was a lot of research. It was like researching 14 historical novels in one. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. even if you're doing like a tiny chapter, say, set in 1920s Arizona, you, you have to research it almost as if you're writing a whole book set right. in 1920s Arizona. Right, because people who know that yeah, will exactly. notice the discrepancies. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know anything about... Um, Contemporary Arizona, although I'm gonna, that's going to change this week. I'm going to Arizona this week for the first time in my life. That's going to be exciting. But, yeah, so I had to do a lot of research. And in terms of the historical people, I mean, Shakespeare is an interesting one because we don't actually know that much. Right. We know a lot about uh, Elizabethan England. We know a lot about what he wrote. But we don't know much about his life except his will, where he was famously stingy to his wife. And um, we, we know various other things. But, um, yeah, with Shakespeare... You could take liberties. I had him smoking a pipe. That was feasible. He doesn't men he, he does mention tobacco a few times in his plays, but it, it, you know, it, there's no way of knowing. If, right. If, but he could have done. He could there, have. Were, there were a few pipe smokers <laughs> at the day, and I, it, it, I, so research is very important. But at the same time, when I'm reading historical fiction, my sort of bugbear is yeah. where you feel someone is just showing off their research and it, wearing it too heavily. Yep. This happens with a lot of, I know this with, a, I'm not going to mention any names obviously, but certain thriller writers do this as well, where they had to research it like it's about the inner workings of the CIA or something, mm -hmm. and then you get heavy, heavy sort of detail, which is just like, okay, we could have just we, gone on Wikipedia or just, you know. are like, we, we get it, we you get did it. your research. You did your research, yeah. <laughs> And, um, you know, so, and that's a particular danger with historical stuff mm -hmm. because you do find very, very, um, fascinating information that you want to put in. But at the same time, you're thinking, well, does this serve a story? Um, the other thing, the other thing I, I, um, discovered is that with dialogue, you have to just go with what sounds right. right. You know, well, for, for a start, it would take you forever to research the intricacies of language in every single period. And uh, also, we'd end up never knowing. And also, it, it, would, it would be worse. It would be a worse reader experience. If you were literally 100% faithful to each period, then that, the nuances of the language would change each time. So I, I just did that film and TV thing of doing, you know, doing what sounded to me right at that point. <laughs> okay. That's, that's a good point. Um, all right. So one of the things, when I was reading the book, it was, I, I sort of came away with, it, with this idea of not knowing if being able to age slowly and, and live so long was a burden or if it was a, a good thing. And I, I found it was interesting <clears throat> that the concept of an albatross plays a lot in the book. And it kept reminding me of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Yeah. Is that, was that on purpose? That, that is. Well, okay. spot it. That's the first time. You are such a good interviewer because that's the first time I've ever had that question. And that's good because people ask me about the albatrosses, but they've never made that connection. But absolutely. I mean, that was a poem I studied young. Yes. And, and in England in particular, it's a very much a sort of school set kind right. of poem. And, um, yeah, I used to love it. It was one of the first, because school can put you off a lot of poetry. But that, that really, uh, I remember being so engaged with that and the albatross thing. Because, as well as being a symbol of sort of a, 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 like a curse, mm -hmm. because the, uh, you know, they, they shoot the albatross. Um, it's also, your albatrosses were thought to be very, very long lived. I think right. in sort of like Victorian times when the albatross society in the book is formed, they were considered to be like the oldest creatures. They're not. They're, they don't have, it's like 60 or 70 years old. So they're quite long lived birds, but they're by no means anywhere near the longest living 
creatures compared to turtles and clams and Greenland sharks and stuff. But, uh, you know, the Albatross Society was formed in 1860. So there were two things. There was the ancient mariner echo, the Coleridge stuff, but also um, the fact that they were seen as these symbols of longevity. So okay. I like the two together. That makes sense. Yeah, well, thank you for noticing that. I have to come all, <laughs> all the way to Denver before anyone... <laughs> no one else has really picked up on no. that? No, that's interesting. It must be my English background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all that reading. <laughs> so um, at the end of our interviews, we do something we call the Nerd Nine, okay. which are oh, nine. God, it's go. not... No pressure, I promise. <laughs> um, but don't put too much thought into these questions. Okay, okay? so it's just rapid fire. This, yes. Let's go. The last book you finished reading... Celeste N. Um, Little Fires Everywhere. Very good. I liked it. So that, she's actually uh, originally, going to go off topic here. Um, <laughs> she's originally from the Cleveland area, and Shaker Heights, uh, where the book is set, is um, near where I live right now. We're in Overdrive. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 so we are big fans of Celeste in, in mm. that book. Your favorite book of all time? Impossible to answer. I will, I was, the one that just popped in my head now for some random reason was, um, Cosmos by Carl Sagan, oh, which okay. is non-fiction, which is 80s sort of pop science about, it's one of those books that you read and you feel infinitely wiser afterwards, but it hasn't felt like, um, you're being educated. It's just entertainment all the way through. Your favorite place to read? Um, hotel rooms as a way of combating loneliness. All right. That's, yeah. uh, a place you would like to travel that you haven't been to yet? Um, Arizona, but I'm going there in two days, so okay. there we go. Favorite holiday you like to celebrate? Oh, favorite holiday in the U.S. sense. Um, yes, in the U.S. I, sense. That's why we started changing that question for that reason. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a big Christmas person. Okay. Cats or dogs? Uh, I have to say a dog because we have a little Maltese Terrier who is the most ridiculous dog. As, as quite a tall man to walk down the street with a, literally, she makes cats <laughs> seem like lions. She's just like tiny. But anyway. Yeah. All right. So you are British. Coffee or tea? Neither. I, oh. I, I, can't, I can't do caffeine because of migraines. So uh, I will say herbal tea. Okay. Do you have a favorite food? Um, I, right now, I've, I've missed breakfast, so I'd say all the food. Um, but I, I, I have this, we have this food in England called Marmites. Do you know what Marmites is? I am is? familiar with it. Yeah. Well, it's a salty kind of yeast extract thing. And, and people think I'm disgusting even in England, but I have it <laughs> on toast and then a layer of peanut butter over it. And that's my sort of writing staple. Okay. And if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? Well, I mean, I suppose, like, I'm, I'm most fascinated in Emily Dickinson, but I don't think she'd be the best. She would not be a good dinner No, dinner she's just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get much out of her. Same with Charlotte Monty. I'll go with Shakespeare, just, just to, you just know. To uh, just to see. Yeah, well, and then also, you could sort of solve that mystery of, is Shakespeare Shakespeare? I yeah. mean, you would know. Yeah, and to, just to sit, sit there and smell his breath. And, yeah. Because you know, he'd have smelly breath. He would have know. smelly breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank it was a delight you. talking to you. Yes, you too. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. 
It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.